Hey guys, it's Monday, April 29th, and welcome to the So What Pod. Last week, we had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Peter Bevan Baker, the leader of Prince Edward Island's Green Party and the first Green opposition leader in Canadian history. We talked to him about what Ottawa could learn from the PEI election campaign and results, about the conservative wave sweeping provincial politics, and the media's representation of young Canadians, particularly around election season. But first, we talked about PEI's historic election results. The Green Party of PEI didn't hold a seat in the provincial legislature until 2015, when Bevan Baker won his riding. Prior to that, he had run nine times unsuccessfully. Now, Mr. Bevan Baker is the leader of the opposition in a conservative minority government, the first minority government in PEI since 1890. And, for the first time since Confederation, PEI has done away with the conservative-liberal dynamic. We asked him what's changed in the province's electorate that's led to all of this. I think the reason that people have come to the Green Party is that um, Hannah Bell and myself have been a presence in our legislature for the last few years. And we've had an ability to demonstrate to islanders that the Green Party is a really solid, grown-up, political institution with that would be capable of governing this province. So there's a level of comfort that islanders have with uh, a third option now, which they did not before. Um, a lot of people have misconceptions or prejudices about what the Green Party is and what we stand for. And we've had four years to be able to overcome a lot of those prejudices. And people look at us now as a party that understands fully all of the big issues that any governing party or any party who is is vying to be government um, has to be able to deal with um, the economy, social issues, transportation, education, healthcare, on on and on and on. So I think there's a there's a there's a global phenomenon here which is going on, but also a local one, and and the combination of those two things have led to that breakdown of traditional voting patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, to touch on what you just mentioned, uh, you've previously said that your platform has three overarching themes, yeah. and I quote, protecting the security, dignity, and wellness of all islanders, building strong and resilient communities from tip to tip, and reestablishing trust in government. As yeah. you mentioned also about, you know, these preconceived notions about the Green Party. Typically, when people hear Green Party in Canada, they think focus on the environment. Do you yeah. think those two visions go hand in hand? Or, you know, would you say this is really a new take on the Green Party? No, I, 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 it perhaps is a new take in terms of people's perception, but they absolutely go hand in hand, or although maybe a, a better uh, metaphor would, for that would be that I, as a Green Party representative, and I think I speak for Green Parties everywhere, understand that the foundation to everything else that we do is that we look after Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you cannot have, for example, um, a vibrant... Um, prosperous economy on a dying planet it's just mm-hmm. not gonna or or even an unstable planet and mm-hmm. you can't have healthy people if we don't look after the soil and the water and the air so it's not that this is an abandonment of green principles or it's it's that we understand and it almost i shouldn't say it goes without saying because it has to be said but the the health of the environment ecological um, well-being underpinned everything else. So when you read through those three um, main pillars, um, health and, uh, I can't, I'm not even sure what they are, uh, dignity and wellness, 
mm-hmm. um, for all islanders, uh, strong communities, and well, perhaps the third one, which is more a sort of administrative one, that restoring trust in government. That's mm-hmm. a little bit aside from from uh, from the health of the planet because we're talking about how we organize ourselves politically there and behave ethically and, and with principle. But the other two things are absolutely founded upon making sure first and foremost and above all that we look after the planet because if we don't do that, then nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. When you ran for a federal seat in the late 90s, you did so on a platform that sought to replace GDP as a standard measure of a society's well-being with the Genuine Progress Index, or GPI, which seeks to include you know, measurements such as poverty rates, carbon footprints, in the way it measures societal well-being. I think in many ways, these values are reflected in your party's platform. Um, while you were ahead of your time in the 1990s, do you think that there now exists public appetite for something like this today? I think that my answer to that is a, a very strong yes. And I think the appetite comes from the fact that, and a PEI is a, is a very good example of this, we have on paper uh, an economy that is, as our previous premier used to like to say, on a tear, we have the strongest GDP growth in Canada. But you know what? People don't feel well. They don't feel better off. They don't feel more secure. They don't mm-hmm. feel healthier. Um, and so there's a growing disconnect between the measures that we use um, to gauge whether our society is moving in the right direction or not. And that is largely, if not exclusively, um, the economic measure of gross domestic product. Mm-hmm. But it's very clear that even though that measure may be heading in the direction that traditionally and historically we have viewed to be a good thing, it's not actually creating more wellness in our society. People are not feeling more well, about all of the things that I just said. Mm-hmm. So I think the idea that we have to not not do away with GDP as a measure, because it's a useful measure in its own limited, very myopic way, but we have to understand that the well-being of society is something far more than just how much goods and services are changing hands, that it, it has to do with the quality of our relationships and the strength of our community and the health of the planet and the balance of free time that we have and access to education and all, all, of, all of those other things which are in people's day-to-day lives far more relevant and far more important. Mm-hmm. And unless we can measure how those things are doing, uh, we're, we don't really have a good understanding of whether our society is improving or not, which surely is what politics has to be about. Mm-hmm. So I do think that there's an appetite for that. And I'm glad that you mentioned that our current platform reflects that. And, and I, it's something that's very important to me. Um, I do think back in the 90s, it was ahead of its time. I think perhaps we are still a little bit ahead of our time. But this discontent with politics today, I think, flows from that disconnect that exists between the well-being of people in, in, at an individual and collective level and, and the fact that the, the GDP is no longer a useful measure of whether we're heading in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, shifting gears now slightly to you know something maybe a little more administrative. Um, yeah. Electoral reform has been raised at federal and provincial levels increasingly over the past few years. In your government yeah. election, PEI voters also had to cast their ballots on the topic of electoral reform deciding whether or not the province should should switch from first-past-the-post to uh, proportional representation. A very slim majority voted no to switching. Um, How do you expect this to play out 
in your legislature? <laughs> well, firstly, let me say how crushingly disappointed I was. I mean, I was, of course, with that result, mm -hmm. I was, of course, happy that the Greens ended up with the second highest number of seats in our parliament. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, the result of the referendum is more important because that will have, that would have had a long-term effect for every election into the future to provide yeah. a legislature which is fair and proportional and reflects the popular vote. Ironically, the results from our election, even though, of course, they were held under first past the post, we ended up with a situation where the seats in the House almost exactly <laughs> uh, reflect the proportion of votes that the parties got. But that's an, that's an aberration and a very rare uh, outcome from a first past the post system. So yeah. I'm crushingly disappointed that it didn't pass, especially because it was so close. Mm -hmm. In terms of how that's going to play out in the legislature, I don't know. Um, three of the four leaders um, in the campaign expressed their very clear desire um, for electoral reform. Um, and two of those leaders will be represented in the House, myself and Dennis King, the leader of the Progressive Conservatives. Now, in my case, I, I, I think I feel very confident that the other members of my caucus also would have voted in favor of, of mixed member proportional. I'm not sure that's true for Mr. King. Um, mm -hmm. In the House, when we were debating it over the last few years, the, the caucus, the, the previous progressive conservative, conservative caucus, um, appeared at best split on that. And certainly mm -hmm. some of them were very, very vocal opponents of, of change. So I find myself often as the sole voice in favor of proportional representation. So mm -hmm. this is the third plebiscite we've had. Um, and although it was a very close vote, it did not meet the criteria of the legislation. But clearly there's an appetite amongst islanders, about half of islanders, um, to change the system we have. So I think there will be an ongoing discussion. <clears throat> I think the manner in which we elect our MLAs is only one part of providing better governance in the legislature. So um, the, there will be an ongoing discussion, I'm quite sure, about electoral reform, but I think there are other things that we can do besides switch to a proportional system that, mm -hmm. will improve, that will improve the functionality of the legislature, of the standing committees, of, and improve, uh, will sort of increase the, the power of the legislative branch and move it away from the premier's office and the executive. All of these things, I think, will give better governance. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I do think that the, uh, the conversation is not over, but I, uh, in the immediate future, I think we'll be looking to other ways to improve the way our legislature functions and therefore provide the better governance that PR was designed, and at least I believe, is designed to accomplish. Out of curiosity, what other ways do you envision that happening? Well, we presented a white paper um, to the Legislative Standing Committee, which deals with uh, rules and regulations in the House on a number of reforms, um, most principally and perhaps most importantly around the functioning of standing committees. Mm -hmm. um, everybody talks about, oh, the real work of government happens in standing committees, and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, perhaps on paper that's the way it should work, but in reality they're just as dysfunctional as and just as partisan as the legislature itself. So I think the way that we populate those committees needs to change. I think we need to have a situation where the governing party does not have the majority of seats. Now, in, in a majority situation like we just came from, where the liberals had a majority, they had a majority of 
seats on all of the legislative management committees, uh, I'm sorry, standing committees of the legislature, and therefore could basically absolutely control the agenda. Um, and therefore, a lot of important work, which the committees could, and I believe should have been doing, was not done. Um, but with a minority situation, I think we have an opportunity to change how we populate those standing committees so that we don't have um, a governing party, even if we did end up in a majority situation in the future, where they do not end up with a majority of seats on standing committees so they can actually perform the function that they were designed to do. So that's just one example. I think we had 20 or so different <laughs> suggestions on how the legislature could function more democratically. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that I will I will be bringing forward in the next sitting here. Well, I think that resonates in interesting ways for the federal level too. You know, you know, yeah, looking at sure. that. <laughs> for sure, I think people were exposed <laughs> to the dysfunctionality of standing committees with the with the SNC Lavalin case, which became such right. a hard, hard thing. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. right. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, Atlantic Canada was swept by the Liberals federally and provincially in 2015. Um, but over the past year, Atlantic Canada, like the rest of Canada, has swung to the right in their provincial elections. At the same time, though, this is the most seats ever won at any level by a Green Party in Canada. So what kind of signal do you think the PEI election campaign and results send to Ottawa? And do you think it symbolizes a growing polarization in politics? Hmm. So there's two parts to that. Um, in terms of the message to Ottawa, I think, I hope, what happened here um, will allow other people across the country to look at the Green Party with fresh eyes, that perhaps this is a party which is no longer a sort of fringe element of Canadian politics. And it's up to us, of course, to prove ourselves in our provincial legislature in the same way that the New Brunswick Greens and, and the BC Greens and Mike Schreiner in Ontario and Elizabeth, of course, federally, have proved ourselves to be good, worthy, competent legislators. So I, um, I, I, I hope that our success here, and without being too presumptive, um, the, the 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 good legislative, um, competent work that we will be contributing to our house here will allow other Canadians to look at the Green Party in a different way. Um, the second part of your question was about, I think, about uh, growing. Uh, polarization. Yes. And here on the island, politics has always been a sort of not an extreme thing, even though we've had deep divisions between the liberals and conservatives. Philosophically, they were, they were very closely aligned. I mean, if I was to show you um, a platform from either of those parties over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, and I didn't tell you whether it was a liberal or conservative party platform, I think I, it would be a really difficult thing for you to figure out which of those it came from. So philosophically, we've never been a polarized, even though it's been, you know, a very hotly contested political place mm -hmm. here. It's, we've never had the extremes of right and left here. It's always been a very moderate place where the parties reflect the sort of island personality of, of being your neighbor's helper. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think what happened here reflects a growing polarization. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's actually very strong alignment, ironically, between um, the Green Party, which some people imagine is a, a far-left uh, uh, expression of politics, um, and the Conservative Party, mm -hmm. which, again, tradi 
traditionally in Canada and beyond might be seen as a far-right expression of politics. Mm-hmm. And neither of those things is true. Um, I don't, firstly, I think the left-right thing is far outdated. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we don't, we shouldn't even be talking about that when we try and, and understand how politics works and how, mm-hmm. how political parties are structured. Moving beyond that, um, the Progressive Conservative Party here is a much, much different animal from a Doug Ford party, for example, in Ontario or even Andrew Scheer. Uh, federally, just not the same sorts of philosophy or approach to politics at all. They're very much, uh, yes, um, economically conservative, but socially progressive. Mm-hmm. What you know, what people used to call red Tories, and mm-hmm. uh, and I think ironically, the the Green Party. If you scratch below the surface and look at our economic policies, you will see that in some respects we're much closely, more closely aligned with the right hand side of the political spectrum than we are with the left, and. Um, when it comes to carbon pricing, for example, I mean, that's very much a market-oriented solution to an environmental problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Green Party is solidly behind um, carbon pricing as the most efficient and effective way of reducing carbon emissions because it uses market forces. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm getting down in the weeds here, but I'm trying to make the, the, the point that even though the Greens and the Tories may seem to outsiders to be at opposite ends of the political spectrum. We're really not. Mm-hmm. And here on PEI, I think both at a personal level and, a, and a, at a philosophical party level, there's much more alignment here than, than you might imagine. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I saw a video of you and Premier-designate Mr. King hugging in the yeah. CBC studios, and <laughs> I just thought that was so nice and refreshing. Yeah, and you know what? Change. There's a genuineness there. That was, there was nothing contrived about that. Yeah. I've known Dennis for a long time, and, and, and there's a real warmth and, and mutual respect there. Yeah, you could definitely <clears> tell. <throat> um, yeah. Civics Canada conducted a student vote program in PEI where elementary, middle school, and high school students were able to cast mock ballots on election day. Those results showed the Green Party winning 37% of the vote with the Conservatives at 31% and the Liberals at 25 Does that tell you anything interesting? Hmm. Well, I mean, that's a much closer, ironically, reflection of the polls <laughs> that yeah. were released in the few weeks before the election. So, um, you know, I'm goodness knows what the analysis of why the polls, um, why the voting intentions on election day for for those who are older than 18 years old, doesn't match mm-hmm. up with the polls <laughs> that existed before. But it's interesting that the youth vote really did. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I'm not going to speculate as to why that would happen. But I, I think one thing it demonstrates to me is that one of the criticisms that gets leveled at, at the youth is that they don't understand politics and they're not ready to make those sorts of weighty decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that the, the the, the outcome of their vote actually more closely reflects the polls of, of adults that was done before suggests to me that that's, that's a fallacy and that, that young people clearly understand are engaged in the process in a way that, that, that we older people need to wake up to and start respecting. That's what that tells me. Mm-hmm. That was going to be my next question. So you've already answered that. Oh, sorry. That. I'm preempting <laughs> that's here. perfect. So now just a few more personal questions. Though you're originally from Scotland, I take it that someone recently discovered that your great-great-grandfather was a quote-unquote father of Canadian Confederation? Yeah. um, I I mean, I've been aware of that for a long time. Uh, George Brown, who was the the founder of what is now the Globe and Mail, Mm -hmm. um, and was very briefly the the premier of what was Upper Canada back then, but um, was 
Sir John A. Macdonald's sort of chief political foe. Um, he he was my great great grandfather. He he was a very important person in in the history of this country, and particularly when it came to confederation, his sort of um, his willingness to put partisan politics aside and to join with Sir John A. after you know years and well probably decades of rancor and sort of personal disagreement. Um, that's what allowed the delegate, the delegation from Upper and Upper and Lower Canada, to come to Charlottetown back in 1864 and be a part of of the discussion, which eventually led to the country. So, in in no small way, was he, you know, perhaps individually responsible more than any other person at that time for Canada being the country it is today. So, it's a sort of extraordinary thing that I I was only peripherally aware of when I came to Canada, but something I've I've grown obviously much more aware of and enormously proud of mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just an amazing coincidence, really. Yeah, really nice. Um, and finally, so you're a Scottish-born dentist originally who made history recently by becoming Canada's mm. first Green Party opposition leader. If you could give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would it be? Oh, my God. Um, when I, You know, when I look back at, at how immature I was when I was 18. I was just entering dental school back then. I didn't really know what side was up and I was much more interested in um, in, in playing my trumpet and, and you know, being out in bars mm-hmm. play, doing, you know, doing what what 18 year olds do. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would I say to my 18 year old self? Um, well, you know, something that I, that my parents, particularly my mother used to, well, my, both of my parents actually used to to tell me, and I've sort of distilled down to, into my own my own version of what I think the essence of living a good life is, and and it would be this: um, to think for yourself and live for others. Mm. And by that, I mean that develop a mind of your own. Don't don't be don't be part of a herd mentality. You know, develop the ability to think for yourself and be critical and analytical and creative in your thinking. Um, and also a life of service is really, I found, I discovered in my own life that when I did things for other people, that's what brought me the most joy, whether that was in my, you know, in life in general or in my previous career as a dentist, being able to, um, alleviate somebody's pain was just the most, that was the most satisfying part of my job. Um, and of course in politics, one, one does other things to be of service, but, uh, that idea of 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 living your life as a life of service to others, but not just because of that, but because of the personal joy it will bring you. Um, so that's the sort of mantra that I I live my life by, which is to again think for yourself and live for others. That's what I would have told my eighteen year old self. Right. Well, on that note, I wanted to thank you so much again for taking the time um, to answer all these questions during these, um, exciting, but I'm sure very busy Mm. times for you. Um, and again, you know, huge congratulations as a Canadian. This is really as a young Canadian, this is something very exciting and inspiring to be watching. So, Oh, that's so kind of you, Phaedra. And, And thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Before we get into the headlines that you need to know for this week, I want to invite you to join our community on Patreon. By heading to www.patreon.com slash sowhatmedia, you can support our mission by pledging as little as $1. 
If all our listeners pledged just $1 a month, we'd be able to improve the quality of content we put out and grow our team. Most importantly, you'd signal that you believe that more people should give a damn about Canadian affairs. If you enjoy our content and want to support us, head to www.patreon.com slash sowhatmedia. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sowhatmedia. Thank you for your support. Now for your headlines. Extreme flooding has hit the provinces of Manitoba, New Brunswick, Ontario, and Quebec, forcing widespread evacuations. Over the weekend, Montreal Mayor Valerie Plante declared a state of emergency as Quebec announced it was closing one of the major bridges connecting the island of Montreal to the 450 due to rising water levels. Thirteen other smaller municipalities in Quebec have also declared a state of emergency. About 50 landslides have been reported across the province. There has been vocal concern about dams in the Laurentian region of Quebec as they reach water levels normally experienced every 1,000 years. The city of Ottawa also declared a state of emergency, where the Ottawa River is set to surpass its 2017 levels. Two years ago, we called those levels ones that only occur every 100 years. Parts of New Brunswick's capital, Fredericton, were also underwater this week. Hundreds of soldiers have been deployed across the four provinces to assist with sandbagging and evacuations. In other news, Dominic Leblanc, the federal minister for intergovernmental affairs, announced last week that he'd be stepping away from cabinet in order to seek treatment for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. He said that he'd be back in cabinet after his treatment and would run for re-election in the fall. Additionally, there was multi-party support this week for tougher regulations on Facebook after Canada's privacy commissioner found the social media giant had broken Canadian laws in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. The commissioner's report noted that Facebook had failed to protect the data belonging to 600,000 Canadians and recommended legal proceedings against Facebook. Facebook has denied the allegations. Finally, a Globe and Mail investigation conducted by Montreal freelancers Shannon Karanko and John Milton looked at 150,000 chatroom messages on an app called Discord. The article they produced paints the chilling and eye-opening picture of a far-right extremist network in Canada that is actively recruiting new members, buying weapons, and influencing political parties. The group calls themselves the Canadian Superplayers, and their aim is to establish a white ethnostate in Canada. They are teachers, members of the Canadian Armed Forces, and current and former political staffers. They are nearly all young, white, and male. While there are some older men in their ranks, it is the young ones who most actively call for the violence in the pursuit of their aim. The role of women is to procreate in the pursuit of a white ethnostate. Contrary to earlier iterations of the far-right and white nationalist movements in Canada, they are now organized and are not going away on their own, as they usually have. They effectively engage in propaganda dissemination and recruitment. Canadian spy agencies and the RCMP are increasingly preoccupied with the rise of the far-right. The following is an excerpt from the article. The Canadian superplayers talked eagerly about the racial holy war, the day when whites would rise up and take back what was, in their view, rightfully theirs, from non-whites and feminists in Canada. When members asked which guns to buy in preparation, one of the men, who described owning seven firearms of his own, pointed them to sturdy, reliable weapons that could be used for hunting as well as defense. 
One of the super players, who teaches grades 6 through 8, told of when he was teaching his students about the Holocaust. He purposely sowed doubt in his students' minds about the history of the Holocaust in the hopes that they would do their own research and stumble down the same neo-Nazi rabbit holes as he had in his formative years. He was adamant that the far-right movement required a presence in the teaching profession because, as he put it, quote, we absolutely need to have our guys in the institutions. That's it for today's pod. If you enjoyed it, subscribe and spread the word. Also, be sure to support the creation of this content on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash sowhatmedia. Shout out to my brother Cedric for the music you've been hearing. I'll be back again next Monday with more content to help you give a damn about what's happening in Canadian current affairs. If you want to stay up to date in the meantime, subscribe to our daily newsletter and follow us on Instagram at sowhatmedia.inc. Have a great week.